It's the year 2017, and Aptive, the world's first and largest audio fitness platform, has been on a tear. Membership has been growing at an astounding 20% every month, and the company has been rewarded by investors with all the capital needs for continued growth. Having hit another banner quarter of growth, the management team now decides it's time to go back to the market and continue running the playbook, raise more capital, and grow even faster. Except this time, the market sings a different tune. Investors have had a change of heart from loving Aptiv burning millions of calories to not loving Aptiv burning millions in cash every month. Unable to raise capital for the first time in its history, Aptiv must now decide whether to slow down and risk fading away in the cutthroat world of consumer fitness or to come up with a plan B before it eventually runs out of money. What would you do if you were the CEO of Aptiv? Welcome to the Mavens of Change podcast. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda. And our guest today is Ethan Agarwal, founder and CEO of Aptiv, the world's leading digital health company that is fundamentally changing how people work out. Having created and dominated a new category of audio fitness, Aptiv now combines scientific programming, empathetic trainers, and uplifting music to improve member health through everything from running to meditation to weight training. To date, Aptiv has raised a whopping $52 million from incredible investors such as Inside Partners, Warner Music Group, Amazon Alexa Fund, and Millennium, to name just a few. Ethan, thanks for making the time to join me on the show. I feel a little ashamed to say this to the CEO of one of the world's biggest fitness companies, but I haven't worked out in two days. Can we still be friends? <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, Kanal. Yes, there is nothing wrong with that. We will absolutely still be friends. I promise to get back on the treadmill today. But <laughs> before we get into the story of change at Aptiv, I'd love to start with your own personal story of change. Tell me, Ethan, how does someone go from being banker at Lehman Brothers to flying around the world as a McKinsey consultant to becoming CEO of a global fitness company? Was it one catered dinner too many at Lehman and McKinsey that finally convinced you to step into the incredibly cutthroat field of digital fitness? I did start as a banker at Lehman. To me, the Lehman job, so I did that for a couple of years out of undergrad, was basically just a continuation of education. You learn a lot in those two years, and it is an education. And I, I use the skills that I developed there even today, and that was a dozen years ago now. I went to business school to literally further my education, but also this was in 2009 when the ne natural next step for someone in banking is to go to the buy side, and the buy side was non-existent in 2009. And so um, it was a perfect opportunity for me to go to business school. Business school, ironically, was to me actually less about the education than the job was. This business school was more of an opportunity to obviously meet people but also give you some time to think about what you want to do. I use that to think a little bit about where I want to spend my career. And I realized that the education was helpful at Lehman, but I had a couple more things I wanted to learn. So I spent a year at a hedge fund understanding the way that capital markets work. And then I spent two, or sorry, three years at McKinsey understanding more of the sort of qualitative, operational, strategic side of running the business versus the more quantitative financial side that I learned in the banking days. So putting all that together is what prepared me to start a company. 
So I want to peel the onion back on a few things in your past here, as I suspect they're more important to our story of change today than you're letting on. So let's start with the fact that you're exiting Lehman Brothers in 2008 during the great financial collapse. What was that experience like having graduated from a really prestigious school, worked at the most prestigious bank, and then to see it fail in a way that feels completely outside your control? Did this have anything to do with your desire to eventually stop working for the man and to break out on your own? Or is the idea of starting your own company and working for yourself one day something that was seeded far before that? That's a really good question. The, the idea of working for myself, starting my own company, was ingrained in me when I was much younger. Uh, my dad is an entrepreneur. He started a company, took it public, sold it. My grandfather, various members of my family are entrepreneurs. And so that was ingrained in me early on. Working at Lehman, you know, the, the fact that they went bankrupt or I guess ultimately sold to Barclays. It was frustrating, but it was also, it was just a high degree of empathy is what went through me because I was watching this happen on TV and, you know, I was 22 or something and single and no kids and I was fine, but there were people who were losing, you know, their careers. And a lot of people, I remember like senior folks at the company who had invested all of their savings in the Lehman stock and that went to zero. And so, you know, you go from, being pretty wealthy to being worth nothing. And those people had families and and lives and things like that. And so that made me think about the uncertainty and the unpredictability of any career, especially when you think about how certain that job looked when I first took it. The entrepreneurial part of it was in me from well before. So I want to come back to your dad because I know he's a really integral part of the story in a second. But now you go to business school to do a little bit of a reset after Lehman. And like you said, try to transition into the buy side or, or to buy yourself some more time as the market recovers. But then you come out the other side as an investor and quickly a McKinsey consultant before becoming a founder in 2016. Starting a company in 2016 probably feels a bit like a solo sport. And you're probably really good at it and really comfortable at it, given that you've been a banker and a consultant before. And then something magical starts to happen almost instantly. Aptive starts to grow like wildfire, and you go from sitting alone in your WeWork office to a budding team in a fantastic space in the One World Trade Center in a matter of months. From 2016 to 2017, what is the one thing that you have had to change in your management style and skill set as you go from being an army of one to a CEO of a large and fast-growing technology company? I think it's a good question. I would frame it a little bit differently. To me, it was less about individual versus group and more so about at Lehman and at McKinsey, I was a junior guy and at Aptiv, I was CEO. And so it, to me, it was more a question of how do I behave, change my behavior from what's expected of someone who's like an analyst out of undergrad versus the CEO of a company. And so that, you're right, that was a very quick transition. You asked the question of what the number one thing is. In hindsight, I will tell you the number one thing is, is delegation and, and finding the right people, spending all of your time hiring really good people and then letting them run with it. At the time, I was probably too focused on perfection. One of the things that I think is firmly true, a founder is very different than anyone else at the company, even the number two or the number three person. And the reason I say that is not out of ego or anything, but simply because what you have to go through to get to the point where you can hire a second person is unlike anything anyone else understands. And if you haven't gone through that, then it's really hard to sympathize with that. And that's, that's no one's fault. When you go through that and you hear no, 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 constantly, and you get one yes, 
And then that, you take that one yes and you turn it into something that's pretty big. You know, you, you've gone from zero to one and now you're at 1.5. It's hard to say, okay, at 1.5, I'm going to change my strategy and I'm going to start delegating. I'm going to step back from this thing that I built that no one thought would be built, but I've taken it further than anyone else thought they, that it could go. And now I'm going to step back and let other people control it and watch it grow from there. I understand now, three years later, that many successful entrepreneurs do that and many successful businesses, in fact, most do that. But in that moment, it's actually very hard to do that. And it feels almost irresponsible to say, I'm going to step back from making a decision on marketing, technology, product, hiring, et cetera, where I had basically complete autonomy. Um, At the time, I think I was too focused on micromanaging and and perfection and, and owning all parts of the equation. So Ben Horowitz calls this being the wartime CEO versus the peacetime CEO. Like the wartime CEO cares about a speck of dust on quoting Nat's ass if it interferes with the prime objective versus a peacetime CEO that enables her people to be able to take the right actions to, to, to demonstrate the right kinds of behaviors. You're actually one of the few CEOs that I've seen make that transition really successfully from a wartime CEO in the really early days that you have to care about every piece of code that's written, every piece of product that's put out to being able to transition into more of a peacetime CEO that focuses on building the team. What kind of help did you have? Whom did you go to advice to be able to make that switch? It was extremely hard. It's still hard. It's still something that I'm working through. So I am fortunate to be surrounded by smart people and great managers and founders, including my dad and including a number of other people who helped me early on in understanding what the actual job of the CEO is. I, I don't think there's any right balance. I think it's you know a little bit of to each their own. I think I'm the type of guy that believes that it's always wartime. That might not be right, but that is how I feel. Whether we're growing or shrinking or hiring or firing or whatever it is, if you're growing, then you're just not growing fast enough or you better at least keep that up. And if you're shrinking, then everything is a disaster. And so I realize over time that ups and downs end up being a natural part of it. And it's actually your ability to anticipate the fact that that is inevitable that makes you more powerful than others. You actually gain credibility and you gain impact by having emotionally stable reactions to relatively challenging problems. The person that can remain the most common in a a challenging environment is actually the one that people often look to. I wasn't like that. I, I was the guy that was bouncing all over the place, overreacting to everything, partially because it's your baby, partially because you know you just care so deeply about this thing, partially because you have responsibility of you know dozens of employees and tens of millions of dollars, partially because you have a strong financial personal interest in it. But eventually you realize that complexity and volatility are inevitable. And if you can accommodate that, you know, I think you can be quite an effective leader. So you talk about uh, looking to other people, including your father, for advice and examples for how to be a good CEO in the early days. So let's talk about your dad a little bit. He is an accomplished CEO that you admire deeply. He has taken a technology company public, and I'm sure you're keen to follow in his footsteps to build a large business. What has your dad told you about the key to being a good manager and building a company that you are bringing to active at this point as it relates to culture and people? Yeah, when I was starting the company, the number one thing he said was take care of your team and everything else will sort itself out. I continue to believe that's true. I think there's different ways of doing that. Some people reward the team financially, some do it with 
you know, greater exposure. Some do it with perks. I try to do it with a high degree of empathy, hopefully motivation and inspiring them and, and leading them. And I try to do it with creating a product that people were proud to work on. He, he's absolutely right. And I, I talk to friends of mine who are seed investors and institutional seed investors. And at the early stages, you are not investing in a product or a company or an idea. You are investing in the people. And you know, more often than not, the team is going to fail the first time or the second time. But if the people are good, that's all that matters. That's what's much harder to find. And so that's true you know, when it's employee one and employee two up to employee 100. And if you take care of the people, take care of the team, then the rest of it will sort itself out. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I have to do a, a little bit of an intrusive segue here with your dad in mind about what else he might be saying about Aptit. So a lot is changing about the business, but one thing that has stayed the same is what you described your wartime CEO mindset about unrelenting growth and making sure the company is growing really fast. I remember in the really early days, you saying, uh, as you just said again, early stage uh, investors don't invest in companies or ideas, they invest in people. But because you were a first-time founder, you felt the need to show hyper growth for the business because no one knew you, so no one would invest in you. So you've had the need to show incredible traction and growth to get the business off the ground from day one. And this focus on growth has stayed consistent all the way to 2017. What are the conversations like with your dad about balancing capital efficiency against unrelenting growth as you continue focusing on the latter? It's a good question. It's funny because when he took his company public, which was in 2001, you know, when, when Netflix went public, which was in 1999, I think, they had 22 million of revenue and I think 140,000 paying subscribers. I mean, it, the, the venture capital market and the institutional capital market and the public capital markets in the late 90s, early 2000s was completely different than it was in 2016 or whatever when I was raising money. You know, his bias would not be growth at all costs. His, bi- his bias is grow a company responsibly, sustainably, focus on profit, focus on margins. And that's how he took his company public. So clearly he knew what he was doing. In my case, the market had changed and companies that were burning, that had negative gross margins, let alone free cash flow, were raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, you know, you look at that environment and you say, well, I have two choices. I can either take things slow and, you know, call it responsibly and potentially not raise capital, or I can follow along with the market. And I chose the latter. So let's talk about that, that changing landscape. We've now arrived at our story of change. It is June 2017. After continued blockbuster growth, Aptiv has just closed a Series B round in Q1 of 2017. Tell me, Ethan, what does the plan for Aptiv look like for the rest of the year as you think back to Q2 of 2017? What's going well and what is keeping you and your management team up at night during this early time in 2017? So we were growing very quickly. In 2016, we did 3 million of revenue. And in 2017, we did 15 million of revenue. When you're growing that quickly, there's a couple things that happen. One is it masks a lot of the other problems that you have. And believe me, we had a ton of problems. Um, Number two is you don't have the opportunity to focus on anything long term because you're so scattered and frenzied that you never have time to sit down and just say, what are we building and what are we building it for? And what's it going to look like in 18 or 24 months? 
I was literally thinking day by day, week by week. We also hired like crazy in 2017. We went from 10 people to 60 people in that calendar year, moved offices twice, the whole shebang. And so you're asking a very fair question. The short answer is I wasn't thinking three quarters down the road or even two quarters down the road. So we were focused on growing as opposed to some kind of strategy, I guess. That's pretty common for companies that are growing at such breakneck speed in the early days. So let's do a quick recap. Active has been growing its membership base at an astounding 20% month over month. You've just raised around the capital, but around May, you start to think about raising yet another round. You see a really steep inflection in your growth rates, which must feel amazing. But something else happens, which probably feels a bit less amazing, which is that all of a sudden you burn more money in a month than ever before in the company's history by a long shot. What is the discussion like as a management team at Aptiv when all of a sudden you realize there needs to be a focus on cash management because you're burning cash at a significantly faster clip than you have before? Yeah, we were growing very quickly and we just raised the Series B and we kept growing. And it was actually really interesting because we were we raised 18 million in I think it ended up closing in April of 17. And we were burning like I think in July of 17, we burned like two million or something. And so we were burning somewhere between one to two million a month. And so 18 million is a lot of money, but we were actually going to go through that pretty damn quickly. I remember sitting on a conference call with my investors and like my CTO next to me. And we said, hey, in order for us to keep growing at the space, we're going to have to go raise money. And this was like in April or May of 17. And I had just closed my Series B like a month ago. And they were saying in the summer, you're going to have to go raise more capital. And I remember like, just thinking, this is a nonstop, this is nonstop. I'm going to have to go back out on the road and go raise a bunch of money again. I just did that. So we went out to the market in June, May, June, July of 17. And, you know, I probably did 20, 30 meetings, something like that. And their feedback was unanimous, which was we're just burning too much cash and how much we were growing was sort of irrelevant. I, I remember my CTO had to go somewhere for a week and he came back and we went to this place called Maysville on 26th Street to get a drink. And I said to him, I was like, Chris, this was not a good week. We got no's from the following funds and we had to sit there and figure out what do we do to change what we have. In May to July, you go out to try and raise a round of capital, but you're told by the markets that you're burning too much cash. There's a few other things that are happening as you're out raising. Blue Apron has just gone public, Mm -hmm. another consumer subscription business that early investors are probably looking at as comparables and saying how to evaluate other consumer businesses. The market is now saying the the playing field has changed and you need to have a much more focus on finances and unit economics. What does that feel like as a founder having aligned a company for growth for so long? Yeah, I mean, it was super frustrating, honestly. Uh, Blue Apron's IPO did not help. They had a rough time coming out of the gate. I don't think it ever traded above the IPO price, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, It was super frustrating because two things. One is you've been operating under a certain way and that way has been successful. And suddenly someone, I don't know who, the great hand of the market flipped a switch and said that that's no longer okay. And then two is you see other companies out there that are doing worse than you from a burn perspective or from a unit economics perspective, and they're still out raising a ton of money. And so it was really frustrating, actually. So we really had to think about what to do. And, you know, did we have the chops for it? Was that something we wanted to do? Okay, if the market is saying I need to go cut my burn to raise money, 
but what if I want to keep growing my business? Like my preference and what the team wants to do has to matter as well. So we had some pretty difficult conversations with our investors, with the team. Let's talk about that. You've decided you need a new plan because going out and raising capital doesn't seem favorable at this very moment. Ethan, the most obvious thing that most CEOs and boards are going to think about in this scenario is the need to control burn, like you said. And we're in the midst of that right now with COVID. There's a need to ratchet down immediately your two biggest expenses, people and marketing. But what you decide is to do neither. You decide that you will instead focus on fixing the working capital efficiency at Aptiv. Why was this the way in which you were going to turn around Aptiv? One of the things that we did well is that we really looked at what all the different opportunities were to think about burn and maintaining growth. And, you know, traditionally that comes in the form of headcount reductions or other expense reductions or whatever. We elected to focus on working capital because it was an untapped area for us and we were in prime position to do that. And this goes back to one of the first questions you asked me, like, because I had a couple of years of banking and hedge fund experience under my belt, I knew what the different levers are that a company can pull to improve their cash burn position. And so that's where we chose to lean in on the working capital side. Instead of me dusting off my finance books from business school, Ethan, tell me what the hell is working capital? Yeah. So working capital is basically the difference between money that you're owed and money that you owe. If you get paid your salary on the second of the month and you pay your rent on the 15th of the month, if you look at the beginning of the the first day of the month and the last day of the month, your salary came in and your rent came out. So whatever that difference was, was there. But there's like a 13-day period between the day you received your paycheck and the day you have not yet paid rent that you have a little bit more money in your bank account than you, you know, should, I guess. That's what working capital is, is it's money that you have received that you have not yet paid out. Or the inverse can be true, which is money that you have paid out for something and you have yet to collect money that you are already owed. And that's where we were. So we were in this place, and by the way, dozens of other companies were in this place too, where we were spending money on Facebook for advertising on March 1st, And the way that that was working is it was on a credit card at the time. The cash is going out within 30 days at the latest, March 30th. Someone comes to my app store page, hopefully downloads the app, signs up for a trial within the first 48 hours. So March 3rd, they convert hopefully on April 3rd, but they're paying Apple because we were using in-app purchases instead of anything else. Much like, much App- like most apps out there. Much like most companies. Apple bills this person on April 3rd. Apple wouldn't actually pay me until often May 30th. So I booked my expense on March 1st. I paid the money out to Facebook on March. Or I paid my credit card bill on March 30th. And I didn't receive the proceeds of that until May 30th. This was like a colossal disaster for us, but it was true for everyone. And how are you going to argue with Facebook and Apple's payment terms? They are what they are. The other part of this is you're spending a lot of money, multiple times of a monthly subscription on acquiring a customer. So the amount of time it takes to pay back on that customer with a monthly subscription is a long time. That's exactly right. So our payback period was like a year or something. So when I get that first payment from Apple, that only makes up for, I think, like one twelfth of the cost that I paid to acquire that user up front. So the payback period was brutal at the time, but... Because we had so much money that we had just raised, we were fine. We were growing so quickly that we were dealing with it. 
the funny thing about this one is that you end up actually, it, it ends up getting worse and worse the faster you grow because you're putting up more and more capital up front. So the law of large numbers is starting to hit you and you're burning more and more cash as your CAC to LTV ratio is out of whack. So you decide to fix that and there are actually three parts to this bold new plan. Number one, you're going to increase pricing and get your paying members from monthly subscription plans to annual subscription plans. Number two, you're going to figure out how to stop paying 30% to the App Store by trying to get members to purchase subscriptions through the web rather than through the App Store. And number three, you're going to work with a lender to borrow against your receivables from these app stores and to get access to capital faster rather than waiting for the cash to come in from these app stores. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. So I've got to ask two questions on this. Question number one, if I'm an investor, this sounds like a terrible plan. Who knows if you're going to be able to do this without blowing up your entire business and pissing off paying customers and and the app stores? Obviously, the more well-known path is headcount and marketing spend reduction. How did you convince the board to let you try this? How much time did you ask for to be able to do this before you went back to the well-known plan? We did do a little bit of marketing spend reduction also. Uh, We did not do headcount reductions. You were right that it was a, a, a risky move. There's a couple of things to keep in mind, though. One is we were moving folks from monthly to annual, but it was it was only the new people that we were acquiring. So if you were on an existing plan of any kind, we weren't going to bother you. The second thing is at the time, the monthly was $10 and the annual was $50. And we moved to a $15 monthly and $100 annual. And so the annual was actually 80% cheaper than the monthly plan. So it was also in the interest of the consumer to pay annual upfront than to do monthly. And then we realized, as you said, that you're never going to have enough leverage or, or power to piss off the app stores. And so we decided to finance it externally with a third-party bank. And financing Apple receivables is probably more secure than like the US Treasury or something. And so we were able to get a really good rate on financing those. And so all of that together helped a lot. So not as risky a plan as it sounds from the outside when you talk about changing. Yeah, uh, and then the, the other thing is, you said that how much time did we have? We have we have a natural sort of clock on our business because January is such a big month for us. So you know now we're already in late Q3, early Q4. So we only have three months basically to pull this off before yeah. the peak season of January hits and everyone wants to hit the gym or hit their favorite exactly. fitness class. Exactly. So my second question on this, given that my first question was probably off base, is that if I am an employee of Aptiv, this is also, pardon my French, a boring ass plan. You've got a team that is signed up to build a rocket ship. And now you have a plan that is what you've called previously essentially an exercise in financial engineering. I've heard CEOs say, I don't want to talk about jargon like EBITDA during company meetings because no one gets it. And people's eyes glaze over when we talk about finance jargon. How did you educate the entire company on this notion that working capital needed to be the focus of the business? Yeah, I firmly believe that companies, CEOs, leaders do a disservice to their employees by not providing a comprehensive view of the business beyond fancy sort of nonsense metrics that look up and to the right. And finance is complicated. And financial engineering is complicated and can be boring. But these are people who are dedicating their lives to this company. They have families, they have children, they have debt, they have responsibilities. 
we owe it to them to be transparent about this. And, and if they don't understand it, we owe it to them to explain to them why this stuff matters. I look for people who look for more in the companies that they work for. And I expect more from those people. And then I do my job to educate them on what's happening at the company and why things like EBITDA are important. I'll bet you the WeWork employees wish that Adam Newman talked more about EBITDA because they would have left if they knew what was happening at that company. And so it's boring for sure, for sure, but it's important. And so I put lots of charts up on our all hands and, you know, put up a PL and, and walked through line item by line item and did it week after week after week and showed changes in cash balance. And, you know, I wrote that medium article and I ran that by my team and everyone knew what we were saying. And so like, it was a good thing to rally people behind, even if it wasn't some whatever sexy DAU metric. So do you think financial analysis and understanding fundamentals of finance should be a big part of every manager's toolkit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Startups are so far behind in this, it blows my mind how late they think about this and how little time they spend on it. It's just, it's unbelievable to me. And not everyone, you know, most founders are not former bankers. I get that. But hire a CFO, hire a VP finance, do it early. Cash in, cash out matters. Yes, I firmly believe startups are slow on that. So your background in finance and as a consultant is obviously helping you take a, a quantitative approach to figuring this out, but also communicating and understanding the value of educating your team on the fundamentals of SaaS finance are, are really important. But it turns out this plan is a little bit more than financial wizardry. You've got to re-engineer the marketing sites. You've got to test new landing pages. You've got to build new conversion funnels, create a ton of new content. And about 100 other new things need to get done to change user behaviors to achieve this three-point plan. This is not a light lift from engineering and marketing teams. I talk about the idea of context switching in teams and how managers have to prevent their teams from constantly switching context to be effective. How are you helping your engineering and marketing teams during this time prevent switching context as they have to continue supporting the existing customer base, but also build for the future? That's a really good question. So what we did at this time is we, we broke the teams out into two to prevent exactly what you're saying. So we needed to keep focusing on engagement and the existing customers, and we needed eng and product and marketing resources to pull off this pivot that we were talking about. So we created, we actually ended up with three teams. There was the growth team activation and engagement. And they each had, you know, a team of engineers, product designer, product manager, and then they sort of shared the core services foundational layer at the bottom. You know, they each had their KPIs, but that allowed these people to be focused uh, to your point of not constantly context switching. Now it's growth, now it's engagement, now it's this, now it's that. So these three teams knew what they were working on and they spent all their time working on that. Let's dig a bit deeper into these early days of change. I've heard managers say that when you're looking to change things dramatically in an organization, it's pretty common for many people at the company to sit with their hands under their butts in the early days to wait and see if they should dive in and go all in, or worse yet, sometimes wait for the new plan to fail. How did you make sure this wasn't happening at Aptiv? Obviously, one path is to instill an existential fear into the team saying, we're going to run out of cash if we don't do this, but that's probably destructive to, to the culture you've built. How did you go about creating the right level of urgency in the early days 
knowing what you did about how much cash you have left in the bank? It wasn't a question of fear. I, I, I didn't want my team to ever be scared. Well, not in the same way as I was. I wanted them to understand the problem. I explained the problem and I explained a proposed solution and walked through how we were going to do it. And I think, you know, having a clear articulated plan goes a long way in terms of assuaging people's concerns and getting them motivated to take those actions. And so I said this earlier, but like the folks that we hire are not sit on your butt, you know, wait for something to happen or not happen type of people. These guys are all over me saying, what's the latest? What's the latest? What's happening? What can we do? How about this? How about that? Like, that's the kind of people I like working with. And that's the kind of people that we hired. And so, you know, if you were of that mentality, you just wouldn't have done well. We probably wouldn't have hired you in the first place at that time. So now you're three to four months into your plan and your penetration of people signing up for annual active plans is only quote unquote increased from 5% to 12% overall. Meanwhile, you're likely burning significantly more capital in running these experiments. Like you described, you've split up your teams to avoid context switching. So there's probably a bit of capital inefficiency there as well. What are the leading indicators that you're starting to look at besides the switch to web, which is essentially the output that you're hoping for, that you're using to stay on course and trying to keep your team motivated? How are you convincing the board and the team to stay the course in these early months as you're experimenting and the needle hasn't quite moved very far? Yeah, that's a really good question. We we took a bit of a gamble, honestly. We tested a bunch of different trial durations, you know, zero day, seven day, 30 day. And the problem with that is you don't get the data until the trial converts. And so even though I get my zero day and my seven day data in that time, I don't get my 30 day data for 30 days. So I can't analyze my zero or seven day data until I have my 30 day data because I need to compare all of it. By the time I wait for that 30-day data, it's going to be too late for me to make a judgment call because the product and tech guys need to do all the work they need to do. So we did a lot of predictive math to say, okay, if someone's engagement in the first three days of a 30-day trial is X and someone else's engagement in the first three days of a seven-day trial is Y, how do you compare Y to X and will that ratio hold? And then what will the free-to-paid conversion be? So we did the best math that we could, but ended up being a little bit of a gamble. And as I said, January was the critical time of the year for us. So there was a lot of inflow and we used all of the new users to test out this new pricing model and it worked out well. So it's a bit of a gamble, but the gamble actually ends up working in the end. We're now in 2018. Tell me, Ethan, what did Active look like in 2018? What was the most different from where you started this change in mid-2017? The good thing about this exercise was that it was a permanent change at the company and it helped shore up the capital position. And as I said, we were burning a ton of money. We were on track to be out of money by Q3 and we didn't actually end up raising money until Q2 of 2018. So it bought us a year more worth of runway, which was really valuable because we didn't have to raise any additional money. We had to make a pivot and that ended up being extremely challenging, but the right thing to save the company. And the fact that, you know, a lot of companies rode that wave with us and then a lot of them died down, just sort of disappeared, basically. We were able to withstand that. And that's something that I'm proud of. And then we used that to raise the 
Series C in Q2 of 2018. And then very quickly, we realized, you know, okay, we have some money now. We got to make sure that we're working on the fundamentals. And so it was shifting the mentality back towards product and engagement and retention and away from the financial engineering part of it. Ethan, you've gone from just a few months, I would assume, left for cash tech, executing this plan and extending your runway to about a year and go out and raise a Series C successfully after failing doing that in 2017. And you've been able to build some additional muscle around experimentation. I think that's a fantastic story. But my last question on that is, with this moment of change behind you, what do you wish you would have done differently in 2017 when you set off on this path? Uh, in hindsight, there's a lot of things I would have done differently. I was still thinking relatively short term, you know, thinking sort of a quarter to two quarters out. How do I solve my cash problem? How do I go raise money off of that? I was probably too focused on the cash management and not enough focus on the product side. Is you know any number of things that I, I'm sure I did wrong. That's in hindsight. At the time, you're just in a different mental place, and I think it's nearly impossible and possibly counterproductive at the time to try and contextualize what's happening because you have to solve the problem in front of you. I think it's a luxury, and I think it takes advanced understanding and appreciation to think long-term when you're a startup that's 18 months old, 50 people working for you and having raised 30 million bucks at that point. I wasn't there yet. I was just too focused on the short-term because my mindset wasn't there yet. And I think now... Several years later, I have a comprehensive understanding of like each day, you know, you focus on something, you focus on something. And if you think of it long term enough, suddenly you're five or 10 years out and you built something really meaningful. And it's a balance of the short term and the long term thinking. So, you know, looking back, I'm like, what the hell were you thinking? But at the time, I don't actually think it was that wrong because you just don't know, you don't have the capacity to focus on anything else. Or the luxury to focus on it given that you're 18 months old. Well, that's a fantastic story, Ethan. Thanks for being so candid and open uh, with all of your struggles as you went through this. We now come to my favorite part of the podcast, which is our rapid fire section. I ask you a series of questions and you answer them in 30 seconds or less. How does that sound? Hard. Okay. Let's do it. You've talked about stopping users on the street in the very early days of Aptive and going running with them in order to get feedback on the product. What is your number one hack to continuing to stay close to the customer as the product, customer base, and company have scaled? You gotta spend time with the customers. I I don't know if it's a hack. I just we have a like we have a dedicated Facebook page of about thirty thousand of our members that post up every day. I read that page every single day, several times a day, to understand what people are saying. You have to do that no matter what level you are, no matter what size your company reaches. I never want to disconnect myself from the customer. Staying close to the customer. Got it. Taking back to 2017, what were you reading, be it a book or a blog that helped you manage this change at the time and that you think is invaluable to read as a manager? Now everyone's a big fan of Bezos. I was a, I've been a big fan of Jeff Bezos for a long time. His, ironically, his shareholder letters, which talk a lot about long-term thinking every year that he writes, they're amazing. And I think of them as gospel. And so does uh, Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters that he makes available publicly. I read those a lot. 
And there's one blog, there's this guy named Andy Dunn, who is the founder of Bonobos. He wrote this thing that stuck with me after he sold his company that when you're the CEO, nothing is not your fault. You own 100% of the problems at your company because you have the authority and the control to change those problems. And that stuck with me a lot when things were bad because I want to blame other people, but you can't. And to this day, that sticks with me. What do you believe about growing a consumer business in a tough economic environment like we're in the midst of now that most managers and CEOs and investors might disagree with? I I think being laser focused on longevity is critical. I don't know any better than anyone else how long Corona is going to last and what the impact of the economy is going to be. So I don't think of Corona as like, I have to solve the Corona problem. I think of it as, okay, this is another blip on the radar. How does this affect, if at all, the long term of what we're building? You know, this is the lesson that I'm alluding to earlier in our conversation, which is tolerate volatility and focus in the longer term and you'll be in a better off place. Love that. Being a fitness company CEO, what is an activity that you turn to most often when you're feeling stuck? Definitely running. Running is the one I use the most. I started doing interval sprints recently. (laughs) I was teaching someone who's 11 years younger than me how to run and how to do sprints. She was having trouble and I was explaining to her, I was like, you're not angry enough. You haven't had enough problems in your life yet to really want to just like get all your frustrations out in in an all out sprint. But I do that and it helps a lot to be untethered like that. Yeah, you definitely need to be an angry person and a sad or a sad person <laughs> to enjoy interval training. Tell me, Ethan, category creation or incremental category improvement? Which is the easiest path to create long-term investor value and why? Category creation will create larger value assuming that the TAM of that category is large enough. The why is just because it's harder to go from zero to one. And so if you can create the zero to one thing, then you're going to create a lot of value. It's a lot easier to iterate on something that's already been built. But if it's a massive TAM, you can still create a lot of value out of it. I guess my preference would be the category creation. And you are slightly biased in that answer, aren't you? Not at all. <laughs> Tell me, Ethan, what is the number one quality that you valued in your managers as you were taking the company through this big change in 2017? Ambition, always ambition. I can't work with unambitious people. I don't understand them and I can't work with them. I need people who want more. And I don't mean money. I just mean more of anything, more of the thing that they're responsible for, ambition. And the last question, what is your biggest piece of advice to a manager listening to this podcast who may be facing a seemingly unattainable plan or a large expectation of change, but may not have the authority or influence that you have as a CEO? So that's a really good question. The easiest answer is buy-in. If you don't have the sole authority yourself, one by one, go to each of the different stakeholders, convince them why your plan is right. And then the second conversation you have, there's two of you. And then the third conversation, there's three of you. And so sort of whatever that analogy is of rolling a pebble down the hill or something. That's the best way. The other way is to go straight to the decision maker with unrefutable evidence of why your plan is going to work. That's a higher risk strategy, but it will be faster if you can do that. So build an alliance or build conviction through data. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. Well, there you have it, Ethan. This is an inspirational story in how you can find incredible change by expanding your field of vision in the things you care about in your day-to-day as a manager. I've also been inspired to renew my active subscription, and I promise I will do this through the web this time. 
You're a true maven of change. Thanks so much for making the time. This was an honor and I look forward to the many more exciting times that you have for yourself and active in the days ahead. Thanks for having me, Kanal. That was Ethan Agarwal talking about his incredible story of change at Aptive. Thanks for listening to the Mavens of Change podcast. This episode was brought to you by Aria. Workforce incentives are a superpower, but getting incentives right is hard. Aria takes the guesswork and grunt work out of design and management of incentives. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more.